Well, tonight we're going to uh, look at a couple different books of the Bible and uh, look at a, a particular uh, response that we as believers ought to have during times of, of trial, times of difficulty. Um, I'm sure that as you've had times of, of trial, and, and if you haven't, uh, you're not human, and you don't exist, because life is full of trials. It's full of, of uh, difficulties. And how we respond to those is, is very important. Sometimes we ask ourselves, and, and I have done this, I've asked, why? Why me, and why at this time am I going through this? Why? Why? Um, I, I'm sure that, that most of us have asked that same question as to why me and why now. Um, maybe there's been difficulty in health, maybe with you or, or maybe with uh, someone uh, that you love, that you're, you're caring for. Um, maybe they have gone through some major health issues. Uh, maybe they're struggling with a particular disease or they were injured in an accident. Um, and, and as a result of this, uh, you may not be able to enjoy things in your life that you would have liked to have enjoyed. Um, a tornado comes through and it just wipes out the whole neighborhood including your house, your, your spouse and your kids die, but you survived it. And the question is, why me? Why didn't I die? Why did they have to die? What am I going to do now? You know, sometimes... Uh, Difficulties are, are difficult for us, but they may not seem to be difficult for others, but they are difficult. You still struggle through them. Sometimes, in a difficult situation, we also worry. What else is going to happen? What's the next thing that's going to occur that I'm going to have to face? You know, maybe maybe another accident. Maybe I'll get fired from my job or whatever. But we worry about what hasn't happened yet. And I've I've heard it said that ninety percent of the things that we worry about that we worry are going to happen never happen. But we put them in our minds and we we go over them and we brood over them. Did you know that Scripture gives us guidance on how we're to live even during times of trial? And did you know that was very practical? Very practical. Um, did you know that we can have comfort during those times of trials as well? You may be thinking, yep, we're to count it all joy when we go through various trials. 
I can quote you the verse in James. Or you may think, yep, we go through these things for the testing of our faith. Yep. Uh, they don't, it doesn't show God that we're faithful. It shows us about our faith. And we can go through this exercise of knowledge in our head during times that we're not going through trials. But then, is that all we're to do? Is just count it all joy? That's what we're to do in life. Just count it all joy. Period. What do we do with the rest of our life? What is day-to-day living to look like? What does he want me to do during times of trial? That's what I want to kind of uh, explore a little bit. And if you would, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And for you more mature people, we know that Jeremiah was not a bullfrog, right? Right? Not a bullfrog. Let me give you some a uh, little bit of background concerning Jeremiah before we, we delve into chapter 29. Jeremiah was a prophet that was relentless at proclaiming the truth. He was relentless. In chapters 2 through 3, Jeremiah, by the direction of God, told Judah to quit flirtation with other gods. Jeremiah repeated this message over and over again. Quit it. Repent. Trust in God. Chapter 7, Jeremiah stated that they lacked obedience to God even though they went to the temple. They looked good. They looked fine going to the temple, but inside their heart, they were wicked. And he warned them to repent of their sin. And that if they didn't, God was going to discipline them. God was going to discipline them. Well, God warned Jeremiah up front that his message wouldn't be well received at all. In fact, at the very beginning of uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 19, it says, God said, and they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you For I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. They did fight against him, but they did not overcome him. They did not overcome him. Chapter 26 of Jeremiah. Religious leaders plotted to murder Jeremiah because he stood in front of the temple and pronounced judgment against the people because they were not obeying God. So he was... He had an issue with the people, and there was conflict with the religious leaders. He also had some conflict with the rulers at that time as well. Uh, In chapter 32, he suffered greatly at the hands of Judah's rulers. King Zedekiah put Jeremiah into prison because of misinformation he was spreading about Babylon overtaking Jerusalem. And then in chapter 38, after he was released, he was thrown in a cistern by King Zedekiah. Now, a cistern is not to be confused with a brethren. Okay? Let's get that straight. 
cisterns are big tanks that hold rainwater. That's what they're they're used for. They're used then that water is used for drinking and for bathing, um, for cooking, for washing. The cistern that Jeremiah was thrown in didn't have any water in it. He was knee deep in mud. Now, I would like to know how Jeremiah slept at night in knee-deep mud. That I'm wondering if he said, take me back to the prison because this cistern thing is not working for me. Then chapter 36, when uh, the book of Jeremiah was read to King Jehoiakim, the king took the page after it was read and threw it in the fire. And then the next page was read. And the king would take that page and throw it in the fire. This continued through the whole reading of the book of Jeremiah. By the end, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah was in ashes. And what did God say? Write everything back down. Now, Jeremiah didn't have a copy machine to have made a copy prior to, to the reading. So he had to go back and write everything down that he had written in the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah has 52 chapters in it. That's a lot of rewrite. A lot of rewrite. That would have been discouraging. That would have been discouraging, but he did it. The prophecy of Jeremiah came true as a result of the people's disobedience. Jerusalem was overrun. People were killed. Those who survived marched off to Babylon. Families were torn apart. Their houses that they'd raised their families, uh, they had to leave those. The land that they cultivated, they left that behind. Their prized livestock was either killed or the Babylonians took it. Things are not good here. The people are in difficult times. And, and the Babylonians were not exactly neighborly people to deal with. King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 39 captures King Zedekiah after Zedekiah tries to flee Jerusalem. He captures him and his sons and his inner circle. He brings them, they bring them back. King Nebuchadnezzar says, kill them. But I want you to kill them in front of King Zedekiah. So they did so. And as soon as they finished killing him, they plucked the eyes out of Zedekiah. So the last thing that he saw was the killing of his sons and his close cohorts. So that's what the image that he had in his mind when they took him then to Babylon. Now, these are the type of guys that you'd want your daughters to marry, right? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. So let's let's look. That's kind of the background for chapter 29 of, of, of Jeremiah. And I'll be using the, the Legacy Bible here as I read through this. So let's look. Chapter 29... Starting with verse 1, it says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. 
the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God told Jeremiah to write a letter to these exiles, to the people, to the priests, to the prophets. What does this letter say? Well, let's let's look fast forward here in verse 4 through 9. It says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives um, for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may, may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for its peace you will have peace. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to your dreams which you dream for the prophecy is a lie to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. What do we see here? Right at first, in verse 4, note that God is the one that sent them to Babylon. It's God that did this. He sent them to Babylon. It says, I have sent them into exile. It, it, isn't, it isn't the great strategy that Nebuchadnezzar had that trumped everything, and they were sent into it was God that did it. God that did it. We need to keep in mind that God controls the rulers of all nations. He controls them. It, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, it says that, that he is the one that raises up leaders and puts them down. He is the one. So God sends them to Babylon as he promised in chapter 4 of, of Jeremiah. He did not do so because he didn't like them anymore. On the contrary, it was because he loved them enough to discipline them. That's why he sent them to Babylon. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves a son whom he delights. That's our God. He loves us. He will discipline us at times. Okay, so, so what does God tell the people to do while living in captivity? Does he say, organize and support a different candidate for president of Babylon? No. Go underground and ambush the government leaders like the zealots. No, doesn't tell them to do that. Conduct a hunger strike. That'll get them. And it doesn't tell them to do that either. Check in at the local Holiday Inn for a week until this all blows over. No, it doesn't tell them to do any of that. What does he tell them? Verses 5 through 9, practically this is what they're to do. They're to build houses... They're to live in them. They're to plant gardens, eat their produce, 
The sons and daughters are to marry so they will have children. And then verse 7, seek the welfare of, La- of Babylon, the enemy city. Can, can you imagine the response there? You want me to do what? You have got to be kidding me. I, I'm okay with building a house and, and gardening and, and having my kids marry and I want to have grandkids. Okay? I, I, I'm okay with that. But to, to seek the welfare, the peace, the prosperity, the health of Babylon... Ah, come on. you got to be kidding me. We can't cause a little bit of confusion. Uh, we can't disrupt the established norm in this land. I mean, look at what they did to Jerusalem. Uh, they knocked the walls down, they burned the buildings, looted the temple, and killed our relatives. Remember? You want me to seek the prosperity of these godless people? Yep. They were to live peacefully in unity among the Babylonians. Mm -hmm. And here's the clincher. What does verse 7 say? Pray for the city. Okay, this is going way too far. Way too far. I'm to pray for the welfare of the enemy city. Okay, I get the part about living peacefully. I can I can see that. But to pray for the heathens and their welfare and their prosperity, they are nothing but a bunch of... I'm not going to do that. No, this is what God told them to do. But look at the promise that God stated in praying for its welfare, you will have peace, you will have prosperity, you will have health. That is 180 degrees out from what we normally think. 180 degrees out. Put your finger here in Jeremiah, because we'll be back, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, because Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes, and, and Paul picks up on this, this whole point. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgiving made, be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the full knowledge of the truth. Keep in mind, when is Paul writing this? When is he writing this to Timothy? He's writing this when the pro-Christian ruler Nero... (laughs) was in power. They were to pray for Nero, give thanks for Nero, for being in the position of emperor of Rome. That's what they were to do. This man that was ruling 
over the Roman Empire who was ruthless to believers. They were to pray for him. According to Romans 13, Paul says that it is God who put the Pharaoh, who put Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Reagan, Biden in their position. It's not the bloodline, nor is the people that put them in power. It's God puts them in power. Authorities are servants of God, according to Romans 13. Now, note in verse um, in the verses, verse one of, of Timothy chapter two here, one of the purposes for praying for kings and those in authority is so that we can live tranquil, quiet, in all godliness and in dignity. Doesn't that sound like Jeremiah? Sounds a lot like Jeremiah. Paul says that praying for authorities is good. It is beautiful to see that. It's beautiful to see that. Praying for authorities is acceptable to God. It portrays a spirit of submission to God's plan, regardless if we know what it is or not. Verse 4, keep that verse in mind. We're going to come back to that one. Okay? Back to Jeremiah. So in enemy territory, Jeremiah is telling them that God commands them to live life as they were in Jerusalem, or in, in Jerusalem in, in Israel. Yes, the climate is different. The customs are different. The Babylonians eat some really strange stuff. But the Jews are not to live a sinful life, but they're to live a life of contentment, not worrying over things that have happened or things that could happen. We spend a lot of time and energy in this last place, worrying over things that might happen. In verse 10 of chapter 29, we see that Jeremiah says that this captivity this difficulty that they're going through is not going to be short. It's not going to be a couple days. It's not going to be a couple weeks or months. It's going to be 70 years before they go back to to uh, Israel. They're to live for the long haul in Babylon. But there is hope. There is hope that they will return, because God says that they will return back to Israel. There's hope. This is just a short period of time. Yeah, 70 years is a long time. But it's short. It's short. God is loving, and he's merciful. Lastly, Jeremiah warns them, Verses 8 through 9 says, Look out for false teachers. What they say is going to be different. This was something Jeremiah always faced. The prophets were always prophesying false stuff all the time that Jeremiah was speaking the truth. 
Jeremiah 14, 13 says, But ah, Lord Yahweh, I said, Behold, the prophets are saying to them, You will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you true peace in this place. Then Yahweh said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoke to them. They are prophesying to you a vision of lies, divination, futility, and deception of their own hearts. I can imagine the Babylonians, a couple of false prophets in Babylon. Joseph says, I had a dream last night. Zacharias said, what did you dream? Joseph says, I dreamed there was a flock of sheep in a pen and robbers came and took those sheep and put them in another pen. And the true owner of the sheep found out that the sheep were located and one night he broke down the fence and brought his sheep back. Zechariah says, oh, what, what can this mean? What can this dream mean? Well, says Joseph, God gave me this dream. It can only mean one thing. It means tomorrow night, we will go back to Judah. That's what it means. Zechariah says, well, what are we waiting for? Let's tell the people to pack their bags and let's go. False. Can you imagine the response of the people hearing this? Because this tickled their ears, because that is exactly where they wanted to go back. That's what they wanted to hear. By virtue of the prophets saying this, that this dream and the interpretation, and it came from God, gives credence to that dream. Gives credence to that dream. Don't we have the same thing today? Well, God told me. God showed me. Same thing. That gives credence to whatever they're going to say. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Okay, so what we learn from Jeremiah 29 is that when, when persecutions or trials come, we're to live obedient lives. In some cases, we will mourn loss. There's no doubt of that. But we're not to get stuck in the mourning. We're to live on. We're to live life living in obedience to God. A trial doesn't mean we quit obeying. It may be difficult to continue, but we need to call on others to help us. Others can provide truth and hope for us. You might say, well, that was all good for the Jews. What about me today? Well, let's turn to 1 Peter. And we've got to move on here. All right, Peter wrote this letter to encourage members of the church, not in Babylon, but in modern-day Turkey. This letter is not evangelistic. It is not a letter of correction. It is not a narrative. What this letter is, it's a letter of encouragement. Peter is encouraging the believers during this time they were suffering tough persecution. Think of World War II and the Nazis and the Jews. The loss of jobs, the wondering where the next meal was going to come from, the atrocities that were performed, the separation from families, the experimentation on, on humans, the killing of people, whether by starvation, disease, or a bullet. 
the trials these people in Turkey were facing came at the hand of the government under Nero, that pro-Christian ruler. It is said that the greatest opposition to Christianity is not cults, but rather government. That is the greatest threat to Christianity. And we've seen that, have we not? We see that in China. We see that in South Korea. We've seen that here in America. Some trials in life seem to never end. I'm sure there are believers in Turkey that were asking themselves, when will Nero die? We just want him to die. Get out of here. Or when will they get a new president? When will our party be put into office? So things will be better. These people in Turkey needed encouragement, hope, direction on how to continue in life, just like the Jews in Babylon. They were faced with tough times, and they needed encouragement, and they needed hope. So how are we to live under such difficulties? You know, Peter doesn't start this letter off by exhorting them to pull up their bootstraps. No. He doesn't say, bear down and grit it and muscle through it. No. He starts off talking about salvation. In fact, this letter is, is, as you see in verse 1, it is written to believers. So it is written to us. It is written to us. First Peter 1, 1 uh, he tells the chosen ones about their souls being saved. Then in 4 and 5, he states that inheritance, that the eternal life which they have received, does not corrode and cannot be taken away from them. That is hope. That is hope. 11 through 12, he says that salvation has been written by the prophets who carefully searched, asking when the Messiah was going to come. The prophets were longing for that day of the Messiah to come. And now these believers were recipients of that salvation. Not only is this salvation something prophets look for, the angels want a glimpse. Verse 12 says, Salvation was so wonderful that angels leaned over intently to take a clear look, viewing the transformation of the hearts of new believers. Can you imagine angels straining over a cloud, seeing the transformation that occurred in your heart? Like leaning over the edge of the Grand Canyon and wanting to look at the bottom. They were straining to see that transformation. That's what these people had. That's what we have. Salvation. He's encouraging them for what they have for eternity. He's giving them hope. In verse 6, he says, this is just temporary. This is just a short time. So, so why does he talk about salvation and gaining the Messiah? And he doesn't start off with the good stuff, like how to live. That's what I want to know. Salvation is the basis from which we live, the reason why we live. Salvation provides that basis to learn to live in difficult times. Our salvation is eternal. Trials are not eternal. Granted, some trials are longer than others. 
Some trials last for a week, some a month, some a year, some for the lifetime. I think of Joni Erickson and her parallelism that she suffered from age 17. She's had a lifetime of trial, but that's short compared to eternity and what she has in Jesus Christ. Peter encourages them after their salvation. He addresses how practical to live in such times. In chapter 2, verse 12, he exhorts excellent behavior. Okay, what does that look like? Okay, verses 13 through 14, be subject to the sake for the sake of the Lord to every institution where the king has one authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise to those who do good. You want me to do what? Submit to governing authorities, even Nero or Biden or whomever. You've got to be kidding me. Sounds just like the Jews in Babylon. Verse 15. For such is the will of God. Period. It is God's will that we do this. Do we blindly submit to government? No. We submit to their authority in their sphere of, of authority, which pertains to civil order. They, we do not submit to them in our families or in our church. In the civil realm, we submit to them. Okay, what else? Verses 18 through 20, servants are to be subject to their masters. Now, this word servants isn't just a slave out in the field. This has to do with a servant that serves the master, lives with the master 24-7. Now, those that are working, how would you like to live with your boss 24-7? That's what Peter is addressing here. Submit to their authority. Submit to them. And then Peter, in, in uh, verses 21 through 25, he gives an example, that of Jesus Christ. He submitted to the ruling authorities. And Peter talks about that. That's their example. Then Peter works his way through the chain, chapter 3. He says, okay, in the same way, as Christ, you wives submit to your husbands. Women, wives, are submit to their husbands even if they're unbelieving. Okay? Women are to concentrate on adorning the inside, not the outside. Now, Peter doesn't say, don't adorn the outside. Otherwise, if, if you look here in verse 3, um, at the last, he says, putting on dresses. He includes that with everything else. So women aren't to put dresses on. No, 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 no. Women are to adorn themselves, but that should not be the focus of their attention. Their focus of attention should be their heart. How do they do the adornment of their heart? This is difficult for women, guys. Because what is the concentration in our world? The outward appearance of women. But women grab hold of the adorning of the inside. Husbands are next. 
In the same way as the wife is as to have a gentle and quiet spirit, the husbands are to have a kind and attentive spirit towards their wife. Husbands are to live with their wives with understanding of the, of their submission to you. Have you understood that their submission reflects how we are to submit to God? It is a slap in my face when I see my wife submit to me because I'm to submit to God the same way. Oh, you talk about visual examples. That's one. That's one. Husbands, they are to understand the difficulty in going through life with you. Be kind. Don't be hard on them. Understand their strengths or weaknesses. They're not like you. They don't think the same way. They don't have just a head knowledge. Put that into action. Support them. Listen to them. Take action when action is due. Look at the latter part of 7. The prayer life of a husband is directly linked to that relationship to his wife. Yikes, men. How you treat your wife, how you respond to her, how you are getting to know her dictates your prayer life as well. That That's pretty stiff. Pretty stiff. Then verses 8 says, Summing it up all, all of you people, slaves, wives, husbands, did I leave anybody out? I think that covers about all of humanity there. Uh, live harmoniously, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Oh, oh yeah, by the way, verses 13 and 14, expect to be wrongly accused. You might be asked, why do you live the way you do? Why don't you go out drinking with the guys? Why don't you gossip? Why don't you tell raunchy jokes? Why don't you tell jokes about our president? Did I step on toes? Mm. Why don't you steal from the company? Verse 15 tells us, be ready to respond to those questions. But sanctify Christ in you, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and fear. Keep in mind what the context of that verse, I hear that verse a lot, but it's a result of how we live. We are to be holy, set apart. We're to be different than the world. And because we're different, that's going to cause people to ask questions. Great opportunity for evangelism. Looking back to the instructions of Paul to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 2, notice that I kept I told you to keep in mind the, the last verse 4, verse 4. When you make all the petitions and the prayers and requests and all that for the kings and those in authority, this is a good and acceptable sight in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why is Paul linking that? with praying for authorities. I mean, he doesn't miss a beat in there. Could it be this is evangelistic? Our prayers 
for the ruling authorities is evangelistic. We can pray for their salvation because God wants all men to be saved and all men including rulers, including presidents, vice presidents, governors. Pray for authorities and pray for their salvation so they might be saved and come to the full knowledge of truth. That sounds evangelistic to me. Could it be that the life of the Jews in Babylon living as God instructed them would cause the Babylonians to ask them, why are you continuing to live life as if you were in Israel and you're not warring against us or fighting against us while you're here in Babylon? Could it be they would say, give an account of the hope that is within you because of how you're living. So the answer to the question, why, uh, to the question, you want me to do what during my trial, we can say that we're to live just like the Jews in Babylon captivity who are outside their comfort zone, live life, go about the normal course of life, do not spend your time sulking or about what's to happen to you or worrying about what could happen next. And we're to live like those believers in Jerusalem and Antioch and Rome and those in Turkey, enduring some tough political adversity. Live in submission to leadership, government, bosses, husbands. Husbands, live with understanding of your wife. Do not rebel. Do not act like the world. And expect to get questioned. Expect to get questioned. Let me leave you with a passage that gives hope during times of difficulty. Nahum. Nahum was a prophet, writing a burden about Nineveh prior to its destruction. And he writes, the oracle of Nineveh, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of this vision of Nahum, the Elshonite, a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries. He keeps his anger for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and a storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The blossoms of of Lebanon languish. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheavaled by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are torn down by him. Boy, what an awesome God we see, but the wrath that's coming on. And then we read verse 7. This is a great verse in the middle of this. It says, Yahweh is good. A strong defense in the day of distress. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Isn't that great? And and then Nahum keeps on going, verse 8, but with the overflowing flood, he will make complete destruction of its place and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against Yahweh, he will make a complete destruction of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunk with the drink, they are consumed as bubbly, fully dried up, stubble fully dried up. 
From you has gone forth one who's devised evil against Yahweh, or vile counselor. Thus says Yahweh, though they are full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. The awesomeness of God, but he is the stronghold of those that put their trust in him during times of difficulty or to live life in obedience to God. We're not to sulk, not to worry. We press on with life. That is what he is saying here. And we can trust God because tis it sweet to trust in Jesus? It sure is. Father, I want to thank you for the fact that it is sweet to trust in, in you. And we have no other one to trust in but you because you are the awesome God. You're the maker of all. You're the creator of all. You're the one that sets up the rulers of every nation, of every tribe. Thank you for your, your loving kindness that you show towards us and the fact that we can trust in you. You are our stronghold. You are our fort, our rock, debilitized. Thank you for being a God that, that loves us so much to provide all this for us. May we as believers grab hold of the truth and living life in obedience to you and not look so much upon ourselves and what we want. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.